So if you have got such condition as autism back in Somalia, you would probably be locked up. Really? You would be treated as though you are mentally ill, yes. There is no such infrastructure that would support, you know, education or provide opportunities for families to support the young person. You, There's no difference between, no, you know, you've got to be either normal or not normal. I'm Neil Maggs, and this is Bristol Unpacked, speaking to fascinating Bristolians on topics where others may fear to tread. Brought to you by the city's community-owned media, the Bristol Cable. In this week's episode of Bristol Unpacked, our guest is Nora Abbey. She is the founder of Autism Independence and a parent of a child with autism. She's had a film made about her on the BBC... She's done a TED Talk and delivered various films and workshops all across the city, educating parents of young people with autism, particularly from the black and ethnic minority communities and indeed her own Somali community. And politics. When many minorities turned to the left, she turned to the right and not only became a member of the Conservative Party, but stood as a councillor for the ward of Brislington in the last election. So why? And the Somali diaspora... How are people integrating in the city and dealing with what for some is a mental health crisis of trauma yet to be processed? I'm just thinking when our paths cross, the first time I ever knew about you was seeing you on the TV on an amazing documentary on BBC Inside Out talking about autism. Yeah, that was when I was doing some work with the... um... Bristol Sun team talking about some of the challenges experienced by families living with young people with special needs. And you have a son called Zach who has autism and it was all about the challenges which you sort of faced on sometimes quite a, a practical daily basis but also having to fight some of the education establishment in the city to get your son's education where you needed it to be. Yeah, Saki is 23 years old now. He has got severe autism. And since my son was diagnosed with autism, he was very much fighting the system and really finding difficult, finding my way, navigating the system to get the right provision for my son. Just before we talk about the the campaigning and the political backdrop, just on a really day-to-day basis, how how does does it impact upon your life, bringing up a child with autism? (laughs) If Saki does not have a routine in place, he really struggles to cope to day-to-day activities. And so it is very challenging. Essentially, the, the brain works in a different way. The, yeah. the, it, it, it absorbs information in a slightly different way. Yeah, well, the brain is... Um, the way in the, the brain observes information is, is very rigid and it's very detailed and focusing on the, on, on, on the details. Mm. So you've got to try and help them understand. And that means if he has to repeat something 50 times, you're going to have to let them repeat 50 times so that he, he processes information. So, for example, a big thing for Saki at the moment is belonging. Okay. What belongs to who and what belongs to Zach. I and see. the minute he wakes up and the minute he goes to bed, I can easily say it's over a hundred times that he repeats. Who does the leave it belong to? Who does this belong to? What belongs to Zach? 
and you have to go through that process to help him understand in order for him to process that information. So that must be that, that must be quite exhausting at times for you for you as a parent. Yeah. It's it's very ex- not only exhausting, it's very overwhelming and you can see that's the only way that your child is gonna, you know, like he's gonna understand that information or he's gonna process that information. So it's it's, it's going through that whole process and, and just dealing with it as you go along. And do you, do you have other children? I have got other children, yes. So I got two other young men, twins, and Yahya and Hamza, who are ever so well with Zach. And then I got my two girls, Hamdi, 50 years old, and Hasna, who is seven years old. I guess when we talk about trying to access education in the city, when Zach was a, was a school child and you had problems with doing yeah. so, that's an added additional stress yeah. That's, yeah. that's not needed. In every cloth we buy for Zach, we have to take off the labels. There's a, oh, then a certain type of material he really likes. Mm-hmm. Um, the house has to be set and set up to meet Zaki's needs. We simply don't have a TV because he doesn't like the TV on the wall. Um, so, yeah, it, there's a lot we have to accommodate in order for Saki to live does that, with us. Does that change throughout time? Is there different things? Yeah, it changes. There's always some new thing that you have to help him understand and overcome. And, uh, you know, sometimes sleep is a, is a problem. Sometimes food is a problem. Sometimes mm. outing, outings is a problem. So it's a different way of understanding the world. And in that way of understanding the world, you have to consistently try and help him understand and comfort him in information that's so overwhelming in his head for him to process. That's the key. It's an information overload, not underload. And the the brain effectively scrambles because it can't cope with that information coming in. Absolutely. There's so much information coming on. You have to help him find a way he can deal with it. So in a family outing, there is so many steps and processes that Mm. go into it Mm. in order for him to be able to be part of that family activity. And the same with when we all sit on the table, eating together, we've got to make sure that things are set up in a certain way that really meets his needs. And at the top of that, a lot of children tend to have other conditions, what's called comorbidity. With Saki, he's got type 1 diabetes, so alongside his autism, he has to deal with his blood sugar going up and down, Mm. which is quite challenging. It's interesting. I think there's probably a lot of misconceptions of what autism is. My sort of first thing that I ever saw was the film Rain Man with Dustin Hoffman. And actually, there's a lot of myths that started from yeah. then. Every, everyone says because of that film that all people with autism are, are mathematical geniuses with fantastic yeah. memories and stuff. But that's just a sweeping generalization, yeah. yeah? Absolutely. It is just the way, yeah, absolutely. That film has completely um, stereotyped in the way that autism is perceived. But the reality is, there's no two people with autism are the same, they are very different. And it's not always the case that they are very genius and on everything they do. Yes, they could potentially be very genius. And for Saki, actually, he's very good at maths because of that focusing on the detail. At the same time, there is the basics that he can struggle with. You know, the simple day-to-day tasks and sequencing of tasks. 
a lot of work has to go in in order for him to be able to understand, to dress and get ready and prepare himself. And we are very fortunate, actually, with Zaki because he can read and write. Mm. Because he can read and write, he's able to follow instructions and he can, he's able to read social stories. But it's not as it is being painted in the Rayman film. Yeah, sure. And Asperger's, people talking about Asperger's now, that's a form of autism? So what has happened now, the, the different descriptions of autism, whether it's a milder version or whether it's a more severe, has now been, with any sort of diagnosis, uh, autism spectrum disorder. So okay. Asperger's okay. in the past has been described somebody who has got milder autism, who could potentially cope with a lot of challenges and have got more skills. Okay, and you went on to create an organisation called Autism Independence. And I will talk a little bit about some of the struggles you had campaigning for education for Zach, and you've gone on subsequently to, to try and support other people in the city. But there is also an added layer and I know you currently do lots of, you do workshops supporting particularly people from black and ethnic minority backgrounds and the Somali culture, which is your own, about how to deal with and manage and cope with autism. Would I write in thinking that there's a slight stigma or, or not yeah. a, a, an acute understanding in the Somali culture of autism? Yeah, absolutely. As my son was diagnosed with, with autism, the other barriers I had to face included the stigma that came with disability or being different. And therefore, that led me to challenging that within my community because there were forms of segregation I have experienced within being part of my community because of my sense disability. And that led me to setting up autism independence and trying to change that people with autism are segregated from our community. What's the attitude to autism in the Somali community? Well, there's a difference between normal and not normal. And so if you are perceived not normal, you are very much classed as being mentally ill, therefore you have got that negative connotation within the way you are perceived and in return being segregated and not being valued as someone who are perceived as being normal. And that took me a long time for me to overcome. I wanted my son and myself to be accepted the way we are because while he had autism, that did not um, change Saki that didn't identify Saki and so I wanted to help the community understand what autism is and ways that they can accept difference that is when my pain with Sutton of Autism Independence started and I am pleased to say now we have got over a hundred families with children with autism autism is openly talked about there's a film we made about autism called Overcoming Barriers of Autism in the Somali Community we have something like 150,000 viewers and more and that's so a, I that's think, amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, I think my journey of publicly talking about my son's autism has led on to really, you know, let other families talking about it and autism being spoken publicly in the community. I've come across quite a number of groups now who are supporting other families in other cities in the country and in in, in Bristol, which is amazing thing to be proud actually to talk about my son's autism leading to the community openly talking about it and helping each other. Nora, what would be the attitude back in Somalia to, to, to autism? What's the traditional way that people, in terms of education, for example, what, what would happen? So if you have got such condition as autism back in Somalia, you would probably be locked up. 
Really? You be treated as though you are mentally ill. Yes. There is no such infrastructure that would support, you know, education or provide opportunities for families to support the young person. You, there's no difference between no, you know, you've got to be either normal or not normal. And Am I right in thinking it wouldn't be seen as a, as a developmental? Um, no. It would be seen as me- a mental illness. Mental illness. Yeah, this, such systems are not in, fl- in place or infrastructure to identify or diagnose learning disability. I once remember going to the main hospital in Somaliland and I've said whether there was any support in place for people with autism. And they said, let alone trying to talk about or support anyone with autism. We can't help people who are dying on a daily basis of things like from diabetes and such conditions, which are more common. So sadly, there's no such infrastructure in place. Mm. And, and obviously that's from the, your culture, um, the, perhaps the, the challenges because of the, the situation obviously going on in, or in that time in, in Somalia. But I think also here in, in the UK and in Bristol, is there also an issue a bit with perhaps people from education services and, and, and health services not also understanding some of the Somali traditions and culture either? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so just going back to that point you just made. So while there is obviously a lack of resources and infrastructure, yeah. there's obviously the biggest problem is the stigma and the fact that the autism is unknown. When I oh, was okay. told that I had autism, I've never heard of autism. But yeah, on equally, the challenge that we try and address under autism independence is systems are not responsive. Mm. Or if you like, culturally competent in order to understand. That's the word, culturally competent. Are, are the services that provide as, as clued up and yeah. as understanding well, of, of that difference? Well, there is some cultural intelligence within our services. And so often there is the perception of one, you know, one fit for all, yeah. which doesn't yeah. work for ethnic minority. You know, how can you support a family who doesn't even understand what they are dealing with. So diagnoses are given to families who never heard of a psychologist, a speech and language therapist, an occupational therapist. So they receive all these reports, all these appointments, which have no meaning. So what we try and do under autism independence is try and develop training programs for professionals to really understand cultural barrier and to understand why families might not attend an appointment or might not understand what they are talking about and how can that sort of, you know, understanding uh, is embedded within the surface and how can there then be the right adjustment in place to support these families so hence working with ourselves as autism independence or any other organizations or bringing in that cultural understanding within surfaces so that it is an equal and effective service for everybody you're educating your own community but you're also educating the public services by the health service and education you're kind of it's almost like you're educating people in both directions well, absolutely, because, you know, as part of our early research, we found that, yes, there is a challenge within the community and that the stigma is high, you know, highly embedded. And so we can do that by raising awareness. But at the same time, how do we make sure services are effective enough and reaching out to these families and not just leave at the point of, you know, language support? You know, the service needed, needed more than just language support. It needed that cultural intelligence and, and, and understanding so that services can actually make sure the literature or the treatment or services are in line to be as effective from a cultural perspective. So the intersectionality understanding yeah. for autism. Yeah. 
you now do, as I said, you know, you've, you, you make, you've made films, you, you run workshops, you're kind of seen as an authority in the smiley community around, around autism now. Um, you've also been quite, um, and you were quite um, vociferous in your campaigning um, towards Bristol City Council. I just want to give some context to this. So Bristol City Council in 2019 did receive a damning Ofsted and Care Quality Commission report, uh, um, basically with um, what they call uh, SEND, special education needs. You have to, uh, it's a legal requirement for a young person to have plans issued to him within 20 weeks. And Bristol City Council consistently failed on that, which resulted in this report. You were a campaigner at the time and you described some of your treatment as disgusting uh, and that a lot of this yeah. kind of stuff came out. And what's really interesting for me is uh, uh, the people who managed to, and people, Bristol City Council were brought to court for this. People that brought this case together were all parents like yourself yeah. all across, across yeah. the city. Just tell me a bit about that. Yeah. Well, I think that goes to show you that we have been failed. Our children have been failed by the system that meant to be obliged by by an act. You know, the educational healthcare plan was introduced because the statementing system failed children and families. It was worse than the statementing. And it is very sadly to say that despite that inspection, today the waiting list to get an educational healthcare statement, it is still no better than it was in 2019. It is worse. And that very little has changed in terms of improving the waiting list to get an educational educational healthcare plan assessment for a young person. And, and the service continue to be shambolic and, and, and really failing our children because the reality is we are we are we're, we're taxpayers. Yet our children would be leaving a special needs educational school or you know a mainstream school at the age of sixteen with no skills. And then what happens? We are left there with nothing. As you say, there is a huge and still a backlog of cases that have not come down. Where uh, Bristol City Council came in for quite a lot of stick for this, and we did have the previous head of children's services, Helen Godwin, and spoke about this at length about a year ago. I know Asha Craig has come in to this position. It seems to be the the, the rhetoric now is is about pushing some of the responsibility back onto the schools. I'm just going to read a quote out from Asha Craig. She said that what uh, what schools are doing are just batting children away. We have to look at schools' accountability. They have some responsibilities. And on the 13th of December, they have announced a 6.1 million education transformation programme called Belonging Strategy to tackle this problem. And we've had to get schools to sign up and now they need to walk the walk. So... Um, do you believe this new initiative is going to make an impact? No, I absolutely don't believe it. I actually lost trust. You know, I'm sorry to say I don't have no trust with any politician who come into power in any cabinet hall to address this because, you know, we've heard so many of this before. But the reality is, under the law, the Children and Family Act, it is not the school's responsibility to complete the educational healthcare plan and the assessment. It's the SEN, it's the local authority. So, yes, the schools need to be being part of it, but it is the responsibility of the local authority. So, you Are know, they this the where, well, so they're all coming in with all their new words and their own new strategies. We want to see this happening. It is the local authority that need to make it happen, not the schools. So I don't agree one single thing of that statement. You don't welcome more funding coming in 
six point well, that's not a good thing well i i think it's a great idea but i'd like to see it make the difference so when i see the backlog of the education healthcare plan reduced then that that's when i'm going to welcome the money making a difference we have been told so many money is going to put to us in but the, we need to see the difference. We need to see our children getting effective education and education and healthcare plans being completed within the time frame. So we haven't heard anything. We're not hearing anything new. So you feel as if you've had a lot of false dawns, a lot of promises. Well, I'm sorry to say I've heard this and I've heard this and I've heard this and I'm not really confident at all. It's, this is going to be different. We've got to see action and we got to see it from the local authority we got to see from this from the SEM team. Jen Smith who is an education campaigner she's made the point that some schools do not want children with learning difficulties or learning disabilities in their classrooms and um, they were deliberately failing to meet their legal obligations and there's been a uh, an edict sent to 26 schools are being targeted to try and start to hit some of these statistics more and and to start to engage more effectively with young people with learning difficulties she's called them education blockers so i mean is there some responsibility on the schools i i accept your Uh, argument about local authority schools need to step up as well well absolutely the schools do need to step up they've got to be a way that all of the different um institutions working together but the local authority need to look at it. The government say they have acknowledged this issue. So that issue being that there has been a significant increase um, in young people needing an education, health and care plan. A 10% increase in 2019. Um, a 62% increase from 2015. So effectively, um, there are more pupils coming into into this than they were prepared for so they've accepted that uh, issue they have increased funding with 350 million in 2019 780 in 2021 and the announcement recently of 730 million for uh, 2021-22 so as we go into this year some people though do feel that's still not enough so the national education union have said we need two billion for this to be actually met these targets to be met and it to be successful do you agree with that Neil, when you see the practical, when you see difference in terms of what's happening for families, in terms of services, whether it is educational healthcare plan, provide support in police in schools, that is when these figures are going to matter. When the numbers of assessments got worse, when the provisions in place are not making a difference, when different models are not being explored, when health and social care is at its worst, then these figures are not going to mean a family who are waiting a school placement for two or three years. So the reality is, all these numbers can be agreed, but in the reality of family life, is if a young person loses two or three years out of you know education or did not get the right provision in place or is not even able to get an educational psychology to do an assessment for an educational healthcare plan or is not going to get a speech and language therapy or occupational therapy but where's this money going then you know it's not all about money it's about how you invest that money and how effectively you spend it and how effectively you target it and actually this won't have any real impact until um it's seen on the ground so this Unless, sort of stuff. So this yeah. sort of stuff doesn't doesn't appease or doesn't uh, give po- po- positivity to parents to think. Oh, the government are investing yeah. more. No, 
Well, to be honest with you, Neil, it, once I know I'm getting on speech and language therapy for a young person I'm working for, in order for them to be able to develop some communication, for them to be able to meet their needs. Yeah. When I know there's an educational support in place for that young person in order for them to be able to access the right support, when I know there's a social worker who can then intervene when there's support needed in the family so that that family don't break down, yeah. that's when that money's yeah. going to make a difference. So it's about going back to the impact and the difference it's making. Well, what's going to happen in about 20 years is all these young people are going to need two to one from a taxpayer's money. So, yeah, we can put all these strategies in place. We can put all this money in. We can change all these different things. But the reality is these numbers are only going to increase, 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 increase. And that means a family's life has been messed up by the system. What, what, what do we need to do then? If you Say if you were in charge of this, what would you do to make this effective? Well, I think I would have assessed all young people with autism. I will identify what they do sad, and I will put support in place for that young person to support it. I will then assist that support in a year's time. I will then say what difference has been made. I have come across numerous young people who were being put in a special needs school or a specialist profession from the minute they have been diagnosed until they left school at the age of 16 and have not, have not attained any skills. Yeah. What's the point going to all these specialist professions if you're not going to get something out for them, if there's no outcome? Yeah. How does our system work when a young person who has been invested in so much leaves a school placement with no skills? Very sadly, Neil, instead of the system enabling you, enabling you, the system disables families, which means they are not in a position to be able to leave that profession. Mm. You know, they they the experts in their child's support. I've got I've got three children, so I have a ten-year-old, I have a, a, a six-year-old, I think he's six, he might be five actually, and and a four-year-old. And my middle son, my middle son is actually, and you know, I don't usually do this on this show, but I'll kind of, you know, you're being really open, so I'll be open about this. So he is um going to undergo some tests. Um yeah. and he is just about to be put into this into this um system. You know, we don't quite know what it is, but you know, Asperger's ADHD. So, so he's so he's in the really early stages of this. And we have a situation where already some of his and we know this from how he is at home, already some of his uh how he is was being kind of defined as behavioural. So I'll give you a good example. He when he's uncomfortable, doesn't understand something, he goes under the table. And the teacher was saying, and I came in and spoke to that he's being defiant. He's being defiant and he's not following the rules and being disruptive. And it's like, well, actually, this is, that's a reaction for him being scared, uncomfortable, being yeah. not feeling confident, feeling embarrassed. And, and my point is they were looking at the behavior before they were looking at what could be something else. Yeah. In your experience with teachers, are they equipped enough to see the no. early early signs of, of this stuff? They are not equipped, I'm sorry to say, because the right trainings, you, you know, there's few lectures these you know, attend, these teachers go to so many different topics. There need to be extensive training. There need to be a tool that enables every child, sorry, every teacher to be in a position to support a young person. What your son is doing is using under the table as his coping strategy because what's happening is overwhelming for them. 
and that is how he's trying to cope with that situation. For that to be labelled as a behaviour or being a defiant, it means that teacher need to go back and do further training in order for them to understand what the needs of that young person is. And so, yes, and as part of the recent strategy, autism strategy that has been published in last July, there has been this this claim is that so many training there's going to be so much resources that are going to go into training kind of a a reflex thing where you know so put his hand his hands over his ears and things become a bit overstimulating and stuff and also things around maybe not quite understanding something and then and then being told you're not Mm -hmm. listening and and i've only experienced this in a tiny 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 amount compared to the parents to, to, compared to you and the parents that you've helped support and, and, and done loads of workshops and stuff with but already I got really angry about it and frustrated yeah. and it's like and now you know he is on the on the list and he is seeing the, the, the send specialist every now and again in the classroom and he feels a little bit happier but all he needed was a bit of additional support but the instinct of that teacher was to label it as a behavior issue and that made me really angry and frustrated for not for him his needs not being met what what must it feel like to be in the situation of the of the people and the parents that have been campaigning for years and years and years and they're still not getting what they need for their son you, you parents kind of got together to campaign it's quite a strong lobby group isn't there in the city and what's, yeah. in, what's interesting for me is it cuts across party politics doesn't it so yeah. you've got well, people like, a... you know, Kerry Bells is a, is a well-known Labour, yeah. Labour councillor. People yeah. like Christine yeah. Townsend from the Green Party. And we'll talk about that later. Yeah. I know you stood yourself for the Conservative Party. Yeah. All of yeah. you are kind of yeah. involved in this yeah. issue. It's a cross-party issue in the city. Yeah, well, and, and this is where it's about the issue, not the party, not about the parties, not party politics. Our children cannot be gambled cannot be gambling in this process so yes let's call sun alliance a really strong voice for families from across all paths and just making sure our voice are heard and the voice of our children because obviously collectively you know one or two isolated parents and find that other isolated parents were being frustrated by the system and then by banding together that's when they people started to listen to you well, exactly. It's about showing unity on an issue that has affected all of us in a way that we had to see results and for us to be listened to. And it's a really powerful way of sort of putting everything else aside, but focusing on this serious concern and how do we find a way forward. And I really hope in the lobbying sort of um meetings that took place with the the local administration is going to lead on to some um, results which i'm sure has not been seen yet and you say your cop you you think the lobbying has worked well let's see well i hope i i hope it has worked i'm hoping that there will be some outcomes from the lobbying that has taken place in the last um in the last couple of months or yeah. a couple of, in the last year or so yeah, I'm just going to read that uh, further quotes just so we sort of end on this issue. Um, that Asha Craig uh, has said that one of the reasons the council was failing to achieve the statutory 20 week time frame uh, is that she said we can hit the model 20 week when you have to rely on the rest of the system to actually do their bit before it gets to us. Let's just be realistic. We are trying our hardest, but to get to that 20 week, it may not happen overnight, but we're doing everything we possibly can, including asking for additional resources so we can up the team 
it's it's clearly a it's a big issue and a big problem for the for the council and they've been forced to sort of kind of fess up to this stuff and that sounds very very open rhetoric and uh that they're trying to do something about this but that wasn't the case a couple of years ago before you guys pushed and lobbied am i correct that yeah? wasn't the case and it shouldn't be we're trying today so I still feel very uncomfortable the word we're going to try our best because okay. we are all taxpayers. We, it, shouldn't be, it shouldn't be tried. Mm. That, we've heard that in the inspections report. There was a strategy put in place. We shouldn't be in a worse place today. I'm just going to jump in and tell you about the Bristol Cable feel free to fast forward members already those who aren't who don't know anything about what we do we are a membership cooperative which means that you can pay to be a member each month you can attend regular meetings agms and have a, a say in what kind of stuff we cover in the monthly newspaper and even in podcasts like this so go to the cable website and find out how you can become a member back to the chat You've stood as a Conservative candidate. Which area was that for? It was Brislington. Brislington. And you didn't win. You were unsuccessful. No. That, that, there seems to be an increasing amount of people from black and ethnic minority backgrounds, which was traditional, the kind of, uh, I guess, the, the, the stalwart of, of the Labour Party, going to the Conservative Party. Also in, in, um, in Bristol, we have our first ever Somali councillor for the Green Party. Uh, Mohammed yeah. Yas- Yasin Hassan. Mm. Is, is, the, is there a changing of this? Are, are, are people well, yes. not people feel the Labour Party isn't the party for minority groups well, now? Yes, Be- I think people are becoming more aware that there isn't just one party that can meet the needs of every community. There's this perception in the Labour Party. I'm sorry to say that they are for the ethnic minority community that's not the case i'm sorry to say that i think people are now realizing well no that's not the case and actually there are other parties who have got a similar value and actually that they can have voice within and i also think there should be a there should be a diverse voice politically in our city and i was proud to say that i have been one of the first um, candidates who have decided I am also gonna. I'm gonna go to other parties to ensure that there is a voice for mm. ethnic minority in the city, other than the Labour Party. I interviewed Samuel Williams, who stood yeah. uh, as black, yeah. black Metro Mayor, and, and he said he had he had more criticism from within his own community than he did outside. Did, did you? I think I did. It was um, um, it was members from the Labour Party within my community who ha- had the criticism from. So it didn't. It wasn't as um, from the Somali Consent. community, yeah? Yes, yes. Yeah. You've only got to look at the cabinet of the Conservative yeah. Party to see from... It's, a, it's very diverse. Nationally, the Conservative Party has got more diverse members than the Labour Party. I don't think that's um, registered as often. And, of course, the Labour Party have never had a female leader. No. Just a quick one to say here that there isn't authoritative data the demographic makeup of party membership but actually in terms of MPs Labour is the most diverse generally 
In fact, one in five Labour MPs are now black and ethnic minority, compared with 6% of Conservatives. Why the Conservative Party, though? Why not the Greens? If you want, obviously, I can see maybe it's a Labour city, traditionally. Um, so why the Conservative Party for you? It just, for me, it was just the ethos. Um, it was some of the... It was the, some of the values that sucked with my own personal values. What kind Obviously, of values? What values do you mean? It, 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 I, family means speak to me. Mm-hmm. For me, family is very important. And I felt the Conservative Party had the same family. And, and probably one of the key things that made me become a member of the Conservative Party. Would you stand again? Um, one of the times, right? No, at the current moment, no. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm doing my second year of my PhD, so probably not the near future. But are you still involved in the party? I'm very connected both locally and nationally, and I very much um, very keen to work very closely with our um, police commissioner, um, who I think is doing an amazing job. So yes. Oh, you're working with, with Mark Shelford, yeah? I think he's doing an amazing job in our city. So yes, I would like to be more involved in some of the work he's doing. Yeah, he was on the show himself. One of the big criticisms of the Tory party traditionally over the years is that, you know, it hasn't always been, you know, there has been racist statements and policies over the years. You've got to go back to sort of Enoch Powell to to, to today, where we have a a very sort of criticised immigration bill, the Nationality and Borders Bill, that human yeah. rights organisation Amnesty International has said will create a significant obstacle yes. and harm to people seeking asylum in the UK's asylum yeah. system. Obviously, somebody with yourself, your background, how would you respond yeah. to somebody that says, "Well, that's just a, the Tory party is, is, is just is a racist party"? How can how can a minority well, like you be a member? Well, how can you challenge if you're not part of it? You can complain and you can challenge, you can criticise it outside. But in order for you to bring change, you need to be an insider. And so I do not agree, people who can make loud noises outside, well, why don't you come inside and, you know, challenge it, which is exactly what I do. So you would challenge that bill then? You would well, challenge I don't agree. It doesn't mean I agree with every bill that the Conservative Party sort of introduced. Yeah. You know, that, that's not who I am. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, who would do that? We are there, as I think members of any party, to be able to agree and challenge what we don't agree. So, you know, you can't just say I agree with everything in, in any sort of system you are part of. Minority groups, whoever they are, have, have never, haven't really traditionally seen it as a place for them. But that is changing now. That Samuel well, Williams that's is, not what I see. Yeah, you don't. That's, well, you not, get, that's, well, not, they, that's okay. not what I see. I've okay. had a yeah. lot of support from both nationally really? and locally from the party. Okay. I have yeah. had, um, yeah. you know, a major support. I, um, I can go to anybody that I feel that I need to ask questions. And they come back to me straight away. I don't see that from the Labour Party. Uh, I think there's a group, isn't there? A Conservative, uh, a People of Colour group or something? Like, uh, yes. Part, what, what's it called? Yeah, Conservative Ethnic Friends Group or something. So yeah, yes, yeah, so you're part of that. And that's, that's growing, isn't it? So this is quite, this is quite new. Uh, there's quite a movement. There's a very, you know, there's a very close of mine, a friend of mine who was the Labour Party contacted me from mm-hmm. London and now has detected uh, to the Conservative Party, yeah. which, you yeah. know, is, it is a widely grown nationally. And this is because the Labour Party is not working for every community. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, you look at the cabinet now, you've got obviously Rishi at Chancellor, Priti Patel, 
Home Secretary, Sajid Javid from Bristol, Kwame, yeah. you know, it's increasingly so. What would you say if someone said, and you know, this is a, obviously a loaded term, not just playing devil's advocate, that, um, that actually what this does is sort of legitimises some of those, in some people's minds, sort of racist policies, or, you know, we had the hostile environment, didn't we, which was, uh, you know, the immigration policy, we've had people having to kind of justify their, their passports that have been here for 40, 50 years. And by pushing out somebody like Priti Patel or Rishi, it kind of gives a good, it's a good cover to have a person of colour talking about this for, for what is essentially, you know, a kind of white, posh, elitist party. Well, um, that w- so as a person, just because the, these policies are in place, it doesn't mean I fully agree with it. And so in terms of the way that a party uses who they put their front line, mm-hmm. I don't think that's a strategy just used by the Conservative Party. It is used by every party. However, it is about finding a way to be able to say what you feel about that particular party. For me, I feel if I go to any committee, any meeting, any forum within the Conservative Party, I speak up of what I do not agree with. You know, there is a sort of a phrase, uh, some members of the black community would be, I would never go anywhere near the Conservative Party. And for those that have done, uh, have been called all sorts of kind of names, you know, or, or seen as, and I'm not going to repeat them all, but there is kind of the, an internal cultural thing where somebody would be seen as having a sort of colonial state of mind, the kind of, you're, you're, you're kowtowing to, 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 a, to a system that's oppressed you. How would you respond to that? I am not sure how to respond to that question, actually. I might have to um, come back to you on that one because I need to go back and get more, um, yeah. I just need to be more clear, I think, in terms of the, um, background, which is not something I have prepared particularly sure. for this interview. Yeah, that's fine. No problem. Yeah. And, and did, yeah. what is your feeling of the Labour Party then here? I just think that is, you know, I think it's, uh, for me, it's, it's, it's the way that issues are being dealt with. Yeah. I do not yeah. see a lead, the level, you know, the leadership of the Labour Party for me does not work for me. I'm very, you know, I, you know being very strategic is the way forward for me and I don't see that within within the administrations of any level of the Labour Party. What are they doing wrong? I, well, I am not going to be, <laughs> it's just, you know, leadership, I think is very key. And, and I, yeah. that has yeah. been something I struggle with always. Sure. Okay, let's, let's move on a little bit. I attended a conference that you were at a few years ago, run by the Bristol Smiley Voice, um, a mental health conference. And yeah. this was off the back of mental health related deaths in, in, in the community. And it was a big yeah. kind of issue that, um, people didn't really talk about again, like with autism in, in the Somali community, where am I right in thinking that we're here, we have a, a, a plethora of, of terms for, I don't know, bipolar depression, anxiety, yeah. schizophrenia, psychosis in Somalia. There's just one word that's yeah. definition is crazy. What, what is the word? Yeah. Wally. Wally. Yeah. And, and so because of that, there is a, and am I right in thinking that mental health issues would be seen as a, a spiritual thing a bit as well well yeah that has also been described but yes so you're kind of possessed or you're not you're you're you need you need to be cleansed as opposed for it to being a a medical yes. issue yeah yes so that so that's obviously been difficult coming coming here and trying to kind of spread that message 
but this was like three years ago with things becoming better yeah. now because i know that was there was a real issue amongst health services understanding um yeah. the needs of the somali community and also people talking more about mental health in your community is that is that happening now i think there is definitely a progress since and um, that the conference took place i think yeah. there's more yeah. awareness and more conversations happen happening within sort of the community but despite any um sort of an awareness that has been raised i think there's still quite an embedded stigma when it comes to mental health on on sort of the somali community yeah. i think the fact yeah. that there isn't a sort of like that level of description or sort of identification as is described in the sort of in the english language different types of mental health depression stress bipolar and such that really has got um that plays a, a key part in the way that it's not being addressed and it's just lumped up with being yeah. wali yeah. or sort of spiritual so i think there's still a long way that um, more work needs to be done you are five times more likely to have a mental illness or mental distress if you are a, a refugee or a migrant five times more and 60% of people that are refugees globally will experience some mental health issue um 750,000 Somali refugees are in neighboring countries 2.6 million internationally displaced in Somalia um, and there are 2 million Somalis living abroad this will come about i don't maybe you can explain it the civil war from 91 that that was the probably the second wave of uh, was people that came to bristol in the 80s and that obviously a lot of people in europe would be leaving a, you know a war torn situation and ha- and seen some quite terrible quite horrific disturbing things that sometimes people carry that with them and how much of a contributing factor do you think those experiences are to some of this mental health crisis in in the words of bristol smiley voice well because there's that level of trauma experience that's trauma, that level yeah. of yeah that level of change mm. experience is a complete culture culture shock into you know you're completely immigrated from one culture to another you know i remember when i came to this country i haven't seen a white person before i haven't seen anybody speak really? english before well, it was yeah. to that level so yeah. it was a complete culture shock when and did so you I, come nora i came here when i was um, in 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 1992 1992 okay so that would have been a year after the civil war started yeah 1992 so not only are you seeing and coming from a war zone you've also then have yeah. to adapt to a completely brand new yeah. culture well exactly which comes with a high level of anxiety because you are consistently switching from one identity to the other you try to fit in you try to be come and belong and that is hard work yeah yeah some people in the community that i've spoken to said that a lot of the stuff that happened during the civil war or back in somalia is not always talked about openly no. people are, people are carrying stuff with them that they're not processing exactly because the whole concept of counseling is not understood within our culture or such services is not available the whole talking of seeing very much as a, a weakness sort of um uh, within the community so talking about it is not yet been you know register as a way of you know overcoming that mm. whole process so i agree and what forums are there at the moment to sort of process and have these conversations well i'm not aware of any particular forums that are available within the community that address particularly 
to talk about some of the trauma that people have experienced. I mean, I sort of grew up around uh, near Stapleton Road and kind of been around mm. uh, uh, and kind of connected really to 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 people of the sort of first, first wave of Somali diaspora that came and also did a lot of work in Barton Hill back in the 90s. And I guess the forums were kind of coffee shops and, and, and cafes for people to offload and share amongst their peers, I suppose. But there isn't those formal mechanisms. But at the same time, in these cafes and in these sort of conversations, I, you know, I would be very surprised if it's about, you yeah. know, this happened to yes. me and then this happened to me and this is the experience. You know, I am well aware of that you would come across that anybody who talked about some of the, you know, different, you know, situation they experienced as 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 perceived as being weak. So often you would find people not talking in detail to actually the level of trauma they experience. To anybody that experiences trauma, you don't want, you know, you you, you don't want to talk about it. You you want to actively kind of avoid that. And and I think, I think it's, it's, it's an important issue. And I I often do wonder, one of the reasons for me bringing that up is because I don't always think people from Bristol uh, and a lot of white people in particular really understand the historical context of, of Somalia and, you know, and Somaliland and, and how, the you know the, the situation that, that people like yourself and others were coming from. The Somali civil war started in 1991 following the overthrow of the dictator Siad Barre. The former British Empire of Somaliland, which had emerged with Italian Somalia in 1960, declared unilateral independence in 1991, but it's not attracted international recognition. It is estimated that around 500,000 people have been killed in Somalia since the start of the civil war. And really, the last thing to wrap up with, it's really great talking to you, actually, is, I guess, the culture wars. And anyone anyone who's on the left see themselves as being on the right side of the argument and are quite critical of people that aren't. And I think mm. I speak to somebody like Samuel, and he's like, well, I, I've... I have it. He says I have experienced racism, but also there's some there's some fantastic things about this country. Yeah. That's re- this country yeah. that's really helped me, and I and I honour it and I respect it, and I think people also should. I guess that's my question: is that where do yeah. you stand? Where do you stand on that? Are you sort of positive about this country yeah. as a whole, as a conservative? Well, I I am extremely positive about this country. I've completed completed my education in this country. I've completed a degree in this country. I've completed my master's education. I'm doing my PhD now at Satavan Organization. I got a job. I am able to have a voice and challenge situations. You know, I have got the liberty to vote. I got the liberty not to vote for who I don't agree with. And so that is such a level of freedom, which, you know, I'm sorry to say I didn't have in Somaliland or in Somalia. So on that perspective, in terms of the opportunities it provides me to actually prosper as a Muslim Somali woman, I have to say it has been ever so positive. At the same time, you know, I'm not going to sort of hide in the carpet some of the challenges I have experienced. Having experienced, you know, institutional racism, it is yet to in so many organisations in our city, you know, the lack of diversity in institutional racism is highly embedded. And that is for people like myself and other people who like-minded to, you know, stand to it and challenge it and sort of find a way to address it when they caught it. So, uh, you know, I have been in a position to grow and to have a voice and to help others and to make something out for myself. So I am really positive 
about my perceptions of this country. And, you know, while there are so many things that, you know, that could be said about the Conservative Party, no party is perfect, by the way. No sort of administration has never been perfect. You know, but if I say that, you know, I find my voice within the Conservative Party, I am not someone who sits back and agrees with everything. I don't agree with. I speak up. And I say I don't agree with it. And I have been so fully supported, unlike the Labour Party. Bear in mind, I actually was at the very beginning a member of the Labour Party. All I have seen in the Labour Party is they stop at each other's back the minute one leaves. You know, there isn't a constructive strategy in place for people to grow. Where what I've seen in my experience within Conservative Party, an opportunity to actually be myself. So, and I'm sure I have the people who might listen to this might not agree with, but trust me, I've been respected, I've been listened to, and I'm in a position to stand up to what I don't agree with it and what I do agree with do, it. I actually do agree with it. Do you, do you sense sometimes, and I think this gets lost, that there is an aspirational element in the Conservative Party for you know, white working-class people, which obviously voted in their droves for Boris Johnson in, in, in the Red Wall seats in the last election, and, and other minority groups that actually... Sometimes the Labour Party can be um, can be anti-aspirational think, and patronising, patronising. Yeah, and I, think, yeah? I think you got the word. I think you got the word. The Labour Party are very patronising and anti-aspirational. I want to be able to achieve everything I set myself until I'm in this earth. And mm. I think that within the Conservative Party, I'm in a position to have that voice and to have that dream. If you go to the Conservative Party, all you do is fight over everything. Well, locally, I've seen that, I'm sorry, but... Um, the Labour Party, the, you mean? Yes, yeah. but yes. So is this, um, you know, on a, on a wider note, this anti-British, anti-kind of negative, revisionist attitude towards what you can achieve in this country as a minority, actually not true, that actually you can achieve stuff if you set your mind to it? Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Well, the, the opportunities well, I, are well, here in this country if you want to take them? Well, this is it. I am not going to lie. What I've said is out of all the opportunities that come my way, I've been supported to get into these positions by people from this country. So I'm not, you know, at the same time, I have come across, you know, situations where I haven't been welcomed because of my, you know, ethnicity and because of who I am. So it is that, that's the reality. So the both of it, yes. So, um, you know, I'm going to say there's probably a lot I've achieved and supported into and, and, you know, the, I found that actually I've grown within the Conservative Party. I've actually grown and it's achieved. You know, I, I feel very inspired. Like I said, at the same time, it's not every policy that I agree with. And that is the case with anything, I guess. It's been really interesting, Neil. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. I thought I was just going to talk about autism, but here you are. Now you know everything about my life and yeah. politics. Yeah. I like to do my research. You know, it's always good to talk about a few things. And, you know, you are, you know, I think people like to put people in boxes sometimes and say that you should be this and you should be that. But you're an interesting yeah. person. You're an interesting person well, to talk to for me because you don't. Ex- well, that's exactly the reason I have rebelled. I have been told and come to by the Labour Party. and I've been told you belong to this party. How else can you go to this party? You know, let me just tell you my chain of politics. I went to the Labour Party. I sat in their meetings. I was absolutely shocked. The, 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 the concepts and the mentality and the mindset. And I thought, there's no way this party is going to be for me if I want to be, if I want to be able to be in a position for me to contribute. So here I am now. Thank you, Nora. Most appreciated. Yeah, it's been really enlightening talking to you. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. 
Many thanks to Nora Abbey for talking to us this week on Bristol Unpacked. We will be back next week with another guest and a brand new topic. In the meantime, please do subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Acast. And you can listen to all the backdated episodes of Bristol Unpacked on the Bristol Cable website. Thanks for listening to Bristol Unpacked. I'm Neil Maggs. And a big thanks to Rosa Eaton, our audio producer. Adam Cantwell-Corn, our executive producer, and Blue Dot for our music. And if you do want to become a member of The Cable and join Bristolian members all across the city, chipping in every month, then please go to the website to find out more. <laughs>